0: sign up for a one dollar per month trial period at shopify.com slash bof all lowercase. go to shopify.com slash bof to take your retail business to the next level today shopify.com slash bof
3: people love stories about people rising up in the world and they like stories about people falling down in the world and i don't think that's going to change Almost nobody learns from a success, you really only learn from a failure.
4: While we're on the topic of billionaires, I, I did want to ask you about the controversy surrounding Jeffrey Epstein.
3: If I'd felt that the, the information was stronger, I might have held the story, but uh, we didn't have what we needed. I mean, I think if you create a, I don't even know what that means, a bro culture at an office, I think that is, that's harmful to the mission of whatever the magazine is.
4: Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion, and welcome to the BOF Podcast. This week on BOF Live, I sat down with the former Vanity Fair editor, Graydon Carter, who last year created a new digital-first publication called Airmail, delivered in a weekly email on Saturdays. I talked to Graydon this week about the future of media at a time when a lot of media companies are facing crises on multiple fronts. There's the decline in advertising spend and the reckoning happening at his old employer Condé Nast around inclusion and diversity. This was a frank and honest conversation. Here's Graydon Carter, Inside Fashion. Welcome to the latest episode of our series of conversations with interesting thinkers, professionals, experts, and today, a legendary editor, Graydon Carter, who has kindly agreed to join us to talk about the future of media. Uh, Graydon, thank you for joining us. Tell us, where are you right now? Because everyone's in a different place during the pandemic.
3: Well we got stuck in in France. We were going to be uh, heading back to New York in late June. But uh our the renovation on our apartment was sort of stopped halfway, so we're going to stay here. It's not it's not a punishment by any stretch. We're down in Provence and we will go leave at the in the early spring to go back to New York. Got it.
4: Are you missing New York?
3: I'm missing my family and I'm missing my friends and I you know I love I, I, we live in Greenwich Village. I have a two-minute walk to work, and and uh, and I miss seeing my colleagues at the office. Yeah, I do.
4: Yeah. Well, well, these are really trying times in the world. And before we specifically talk about the topic at hand, which is you know uh, media, a, a topic you and I are both very passionate about. I just since you are such a, a wide-ranging thinker and you talk to so many people, and you probably have you know, a a number of different perspectives and ideas that you're discussing with the people in your life, personally and professionally. I'm just curious how you're interpreting and making sense of what's happening in the world right now, you know, starting with a pandemic and uh, an economic crisis and now, you know, global protests around, you know, racial equity. Um, it's, It's hard to ask anyone to give predictions, but, you know, as you think about this moment that we're living through, how do you think it will stand up in in history?
3: I mean, the, the, I don't think a lot is going to good. It's going to come out of the the pandemic, um, other than people may realize a more of a a life of the mind that they didn't have before, and they became more comfortable being by themselves rather than rushing around in the rat race. The 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 protests. I think uh, great things will come out of this. I think that. Um, uh George Floyd was a, like a, clearly a noble person. Uh, the horrifying images of his death, I think, really shook people when having a, a, quite an effect on 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 how America you know comports itself and how it, 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 it treats how it divides the spoils of the most you know the wealthiest nation on earth and a country that thinks of itself as exceptional and the greatest country on earth, and I think it's got to you know it has a chance. If it makes changes to become that again,
4: yeah. And you know, you've been no fan of Donald Trump over the last uh, few years. I remember some of your letters at Vanity Fair. I mean, the other thing, of course, that's really been exposed is just a complete lack of leadership um, in terms of the way, at the at least at the federal level.
3: Well, he got rid of almost department by department. He got rid of all the. The experts; that were, you know, part of the, the so-called deep state, and I think that, and I think Boris Johnson did a similar thing in England. And it, you know, the best thing is is to not try to be the smartest person in the room. Uh, much better to be uh, have be surrounded by people who are smarter than you. I think Trump was so insecure, and he ran his company in a sort of like not a big company; it was sort of a jerry-rigged operation, and I don't think he was at all fit for the sort of leadership you need at a time of crisis, hard enough when things are going well, but when you're you had this one two slam of the pandemic and then the protests and I used to handle it appallingly, both of them
4: yeah, yeah. I go
3: back to nineteen eighty three with donald trump i spent i did a story the his first major story on him was uh I, I signed by uh, gq magazine and I was working at life magazine at the time and I spent three weeks with him and i you know i sort of I got to see what he was. And um, so, I mean, the funny thing is that he he hated this story so much. It was a cover story. He hated it so much that he had his staff go buy up all the magazines they could get their hands on in New York City. And um, Cy Newhouse, who uh, was the proprietor of Vanity Fair and Vogue and everything else at Condé Nast, also owned Random House. And, and he saw the sales of GQ with Trump on the cover and they were so much better in New York than previous covers, uh, <laughs> he went to the people at Random House and suggested they get him to write a book. And then and the art of the deal comes up. So it was all built on a, a falsehood, His, that, that, those first steps to sort of public acclaim in the United right. States.
4: And you had a small role to play in that, having written that. Well, article.
3: also I noticed one thing he hated about it was that I noticed that he had very small—they're very well manicured, but very small hands—and when we we started Spy Magazine, we'd make up these sort of funny epithets for people. And with Donald Trump, it was um, we called him a, a short-fingered Bulgarian, which he really hated, and he—you know—he threatened to sue us numerous times, and and here we are you know i mean i think he's uh, you know he's what for america to to rejigger itself and do the right thing he's got to go in november period
4: yeah well the latest polls i've seen a number of them say uh, joe biden is now the favorite candidate uh, you know pretty much everywhere so
3: i'm not i'm not a big uh believer in polls it's it's uh about the last time and I was so shocked and so depressed when I woke up after the election in November 2016. I thought, I, I, I wish, I couldn't believe this could happen in America. But yeah. here we are.
4: Yeah. Well, anyway, we're here to talk not about politics, but about the future of media amidst this changing landscape. And, you know, I thought we could actually go back, right to when you first, you know, got into magazines. Like, what was it that first drew you to this this magical world of glossy magazines in the first place and what was it like for you
3: well i you know i grew up in ottawa in canada as you did and you know but i wanted um, for some reason i the world of magazine magazines bring the world to you more than newspapers do and more than books do They're, they bring the the sort of cultural nuances of what's going on now to your to your door and you know we subscribed to time magazine and life magazine and when i got became a teenager i subscribed to esquire and they told you about a world outside the little small town you're living in and um and so i wanted to i love magazines and i thought i thought i didn't know anybody in the magazine business um, I mean, ottawa had you know bureaucrats and professionals and that was about all it had but i um uh, I managed to get a job at time. I started a magazine when I was in Canada. I, I co-started it with a with a fellow by the name of Graham Pomeroy, and he he taught me a lot about uh, about what what makes a magazine. It was a literary political magazine. Um, it wasn't very good. We ran it for five years. Uh, we sold it to our closest competitor, and uh, and I was out of work. But I'd learned I'd learned a lot what not to do. I tell my kids all the time that you almost nobody learns from a success. You really only learn uh, from a failure. And, and this was a failure. And so I, I managed to get a job at Time in New York, which was then uh, an extraordinary place to work. The, the, the quality of the writing, the quality of the writers was extraordinary. And when I joined there, Michi Kakotani was, was a writer. She went on to become the chief book critic of the New York Times for 35 years. Frank Rich, who then on went on to be a star of the New York Times was there. Maureen Dowd, who's still at the Times, was there. My co-editor at Airmail, <coughs> excuse me, Alexander Stanley was there. Walter Ossison was there. Jim Kelly, who was my closest friend, he and I started a week apart. He became the editor of Time. My partner by wow. Kurt Anderson was there. It was um, it was an amazing time. And uh, we all still stayed, we stayed close to each other. And uh, And that was my uh, getting to New York and getting that job was like a dream.
4: And then Vanity Fair, how did that happen?
3: Well, there were steps along the way. So we started, I went to Life Magazine. Then we, and Life is when we, I was really bored all the time. And so we had this idea for a monthly satirical magazine about New York. So uh, Kurt and I, we did Spy Magazine and we ran that for five years. And at one point, Cy wanted to buy it, and we I foolishly rejected his offer. But then we sold it to John Pagazzi and Charles Saatchi in like 1990, 1991, and I went to edit a newspaper. So I sort took over this newspaper and redid it. It's, it was called the New York Observer, and it was quite successful. And once I got it going, um, uh, I started sending comp copies to, Editors on you all over in the in the country and in Europe, and Sai, who owns Vanity Fair, would take an annual two two annual trips to to Europe and to visit his editors. And in each editor's office he visited, he'd see a copy of the New York Observer. So he comes back to New York thinking everybody's reading this paper, <laughs> and he calls me up and asked me if he said, "Look, I've got two opportunities, and I wonder if you'd come over and talk about them." So um, we made an appointment for two days hence I was quite I was really anxious about what these would be so he offered he says um yes I mean I've got two magazines that I'd love you to edit one is the New Yorker and one is Vanity Fair and I said wow I was wow and I and I said um I said well you know uh we sort of spent the last five years making fun of Vanity Fair at Spy um if it's a choice I'll take the New Yorker he said okay that's it and so, for the next two weeks, I you know, with my family and with my uh, with my my friend Jim Kelly, you know, I worked on a plan to like you know, sort of redo it a bit. Over, I had a, a nine month plan, an eighteen month plan, and a twenty four month plan. And then the day it was supposed to be announced. I got a call from Anna Wintour said, um, "It's not that magazine. It's the other one." So, I she said, "But Sai's going to call you and act surprise. So I. I was. Uh, Cy calls me and says, "Actually, it's going to be Vanity Fair." And I was so. <laughs> I said, "That's great. I'll take it." And um, and I was so. I, I was so naive. I thought if I didn't start right away, actually producing an issue, that I wouldn't get paid. And I des- and I had three kids at the time, uh, and so I. Uh, I started. I started without a plan, and it took me two years to fully get my. My feet under the desk and uh you know sort out the staff. I didn't fire anybody when I went in. And then two years in I got rid of four people who I thought were, you know, did not want, weren't interested in my success there. So and and after that I had 23 years of relative happiness.
4: Yeah. I mean it it's a career that, you know, many of us uh fellow editors and reporters and journalists have looked upon. With admiration. I'm I'm curious to understand, you know, with that perspective that you have, you know, riding, you know, the kind of height of the success of, of Vanity Fair, you know, what is your perspective on the media landscape now in the context of the things that you know you and I were discussing at the beginning of the conversation? How do you how do you see the role of media during this pandemic and the resulting economic and social crisis that has followed? And you know, what do you see happening to the business generally?
3: Well, it's a, it's a, it's a complicated conversation. I mean, first of all, I, I think, for me, I, I think there is more good journalism being produced now than there was 25 years ago. Um, uh, there are more venues. They're not traditional as, as they were back in the day when it had to be you know part of a large magazine company and then working for an individual magazine. But the fact is now that you, you know, in those days, you needed to work for somebody who had owned the, the means of production, you know, a Time Incorporated or a Condé Nast or Hearst. Nowadays, you, you can start your own thing and you, well, you can do it on your kitchen table. And the difficult part is getting somebody to come to read your things. You know, the hard part is, is standing out. The media, to, I mean, magazines and newspapers took a beating in 2008 because you know, when companies were close to going under, the first thing they, the easiest thing to cut is their advertising budget, because it doesn't involve laying off people so much. It's, it's you, you barely notice it, it when it's gone. And I was surprised that it didn't come back in 2009, 2010. So newspapers took a a, a, a bashing. And then at the same time, the internet picks up speed so that if you're a daily newspaper, you know, that's a 20, you're waiting 24 hours for the next edition to come out. The internet is just exploding with fresh information on, on every minute. So I think newspapers took a a, a real hit in the, in the early stages after the, the recession. In New York City, Bloom, Mike Bloomberg wanted to renovate the newsstands in the city. They were, you know, a lot of, them are all different. They were, they were privately owned. Most of them were owned by veterans. They didn't make a lot of money. And they wanted to spruce them up, but the newsstand owners would have to pay for that. So um, a lot of them just shuts. And you know, every once in a while, when you see a newsstand in New York, it's it's like seeing a horse on 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 the on the on the, on the streets. They're so unusual, and and I miss them. And so right now, I think that uh, the this the the coronavirus will be an, and the the subsequent economic problems will cause further problems in the magazine business. The, we didn't lose any advertising at Vanity Fair, at Airmail. Our advertisers moved to later in the year. But I think that magazines were, you know, print is in, it's gonna have its, its issues. And I think the strong magazines will survive and thrive, and the weak, weak ones will go away. And, and that is sort of a sort of natural process in, in any industry. Um, i think big companies don't are no more safe than small companies when it comes to to publications but i i think that and i think it's easier in a funny way starting airmail it's easier creating something new digitally than it is transferring something from print into digital i think that's it's like um it's like um uh, trying to turn a horse into a camel it doesn't it, it works in some instances but in most instances it doesn't work um, so I, you know, I uh, I love being in the print business. I love the feel of magazines, and I think that young people will love magazines again. There'll just be different kinds of magazines. There won't be weekly magazines of news. There'll be magazines of thought and of photography and art, and they'll pay, you know, fifteen pounds for the meta, you know, one of these sort of universal newsstands. Uh, so I don't think they'll go away, but they they won't quite be like vinyl when it comes like with recordings. But there's a certain um there's certain romance for magazines i think still among younger people especially among older people
4: you said earlier that the strong magazines will survive and i do want to talk about airmail and the business model there because i'm i'm quite interested in it but before we move on to that you know what makes a strong magazine now do you think and is it different from what made a strong magazine you know when you, when you were running vanity fair or spy or
3: Well, you know, I I had um, I I learned the reason my magazine in Canada failed was because it it was a it was sort of a general interest political literary magazine, but it didn't really have a point. It was was just there, and I learned this in the in the restaurant business too. Restaurant that had a point thrived. A restaurant that didn't have a point to it didn't uh, thrive. So, I think a magazine that has a great connection to its readers will do well, and one that has a distant relationship to its readers will not do well. Right, As simple as that, I mean, the fact is, obviously fashion magazines are gonna have a hell of a time right now because they shoot their, their big, uh, you know, September, October, November, December issues uh, over the last three or four months, and they can't do that. So uh, I think Italian Vogue did a very clever thing. They did all the illustrations, which can be done from home. And uh, so it's hard to know, but I do think if you connect with your readers on a, um, a magazine and you sort of hit a chord with them, I think you'll do well. You have to be like in the first or second favorite magazine of, an, of, your, of your reader. I think then you do well.
4: Right. So that means there's going to be a lot that just don't survive this.
3: Yeah. If you're the fifth favorite magazine of a reader, now eh, they could probably do without you.
4: Yeah. Well, you've, you've moved from this kind of print advertising model at Vanity Fair to a digital advertising subscription model at Airmail. And I, I'm curious about the, the decision-making process. You know, what went through your mind to say, okay, the world needs another publication in a time when there's so many publications. So I guess to your last point, what was the point that you were, or what was a market space or white space that you were trying to fill, and what was the point of view you were trying to offer that wasn't already available?
3: Well, first of all, when I when I left Vanity Fair, I thought, okay, I can't. If you edited Vanity Fair, there's no point in trying another print magazine because you had the greatest job of all time. And so I, I um, we came to France, and I. Um, I used to my wife, usually bring home all this, the foreign papers on Saturday and Sunday, and cut out articles and bring them into the office and suggest uh, stories for some of the writers. But when we got here, I'd send I, I, I did it digitally, and I would send interesting stories I thought to friends. And I thought I could just this is something I could make into a a business. I thought originally it'd be a primitive little newsletter with, uh, and then I thought. No, I, 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 I want it to look beautiful and I want it to have, I don't want programmatic ads because I find them um, antithetical to a clean reading experience when they're moving across the page and jumping up and things going down the side and coming up at the bottom. So I wanted something that uh, with old school values and fact checking and legal review and copy editing and photo research, but but a new school way of distributing it and i will tell you if the internet existed uh, 30 years 33 years ago when we started spy magazine i don't think we would have printed it. i think it would have been online only so i and i wanted something that i could uh build and um operate from a distance so we built this incredible platform from scratch and you know the staff is in london the staff is in new york the staff is in long island the staff's in connecticut Um, and we put it together with as easy this uh, this week as it would have been, um, a year ago when we started, when we were all together in New York, by and large. And I wanted something, I didn't want a daily because I didn't want to work that hard. And I didn't want a monthly because I thought monthly is too slow. Uh, and a weekly actually agrees with me. I love the schedule because a monthly is just a, a, just constant chaos because there are no dividing lines of what things, when things are supposed to close and, and get out of the way. But with a weekly, you know, what you have to do by Tuesday at noon, what you have to do by Wednesday at noon. And it's it's all very clear. Furthermore, I find that having a six hour jump on New York is a great advantage because I can get all my work done uh, before they wake up. And then after, so then all you, you can just talk to them. And I used to do that at Vanity Fair, i generally wake up, read the papers, um, do all my correspondence, all my phone calls, edit all my manuscripts. I wouldn't get into the office much before 11 or 11.30 because, and from then to the end of the day, it was just talking to writers, photographers, editors, you know, uh, uh, and trying to figure it just to try to, you know, an editor's job is to make something that somebody is working on today seem like the most important thing they've ever done. And then turn around and do it three months hence, and try to tell them that that's the most important thing they've ever done, and the same thing goes with photographers, so that was my job and then the, the job of an editor also is to make you have a, a multitude of voices and a multitude of images, but somehow I'll try to make it come together as a choir rather than just cacophony uh, right. so that was that's the day job of an editor and right. and it hasn't changed that much, I'm sure in two hundred years, yeah. absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness because one purchased equals one donated. Wow. Did we just write an ad? Yes.
2: Bombas, big comfort
1: for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off limits.
4: with airmail Graydon, is that it's a smaller organization and at vanity fair you were probably more isolated from the the business side of things actually Um, really but
3: uh, go ahead
4: okay well maybe you weren't but then so maybe compare you know the business model which is i think really important to discuss you know the advertising business model in glossy print magazines you know how how are you um how are you making out with the business model of you know, digital advertising and subscriptions, because, you know, the the weighting is different in terms of where you get the revenue, right?
3: One thing is, I I used to write thank you notes to my advertisers every month at Vanity Fair because they gave us $100,000 per page and that $100,000 paid for the journalism. And I really appreciate it. Also, their ads were beautiful and made the magazine look better. So when I left, when I was starting Airmail, I wrote to 15 or 20 of them and to explain what I was doing, and asking if they would be a sponsor for an individual week because we have a, a single advertiser per week. The ads are beautiful, and I think the advertisers like it because it means they're not they're not coming up against you know insurance company ads or uh, you know ISIS training videos or uh, Geico ads for. Uh, yeah, or, uh, so it, they, it's a very clean experience for them, and it's a clean experience for us. It, it's better for the reader because I, I wanted a. a, a um, uh, an addition that nothing would move unless you asked it to move I didn't want you know ads all of a sudden jumping up and, and, and distracting you and so and we we expected to get fifty percent from uh advertising and fifty percent from uh readers. We're probably about sixty five percent advertising thirty five percent readers. But we're only, you know, 40 issues in, and I expect we thought it would take about 18 months to get that point.
4: You know, earlier we were talking about the kind of media industry generally, and like over the last uh, few weeks uh, in America, given everything that's going on, you know, a lot of your former colleagues at Condé Nast and in other publications have been forced to resign amidst allegations of cultures of exclusion and racism and you know what what do you do what do you think this reckoning is going to lead to in terms of the way some of these long-standing media companies have to change in terms of the way they work and who they hire
3: well i mean i think if you create a, a, a i don't even know what that means a bro culture at an office i think that is um, uh, that's harmful to the mission of whatever the magazine is I think a toxic environment is is harmful to the mission. Um, You know, I dealt with most landing fair employees like one-to-one, there was no layering. So I would probably deal with, you know, 45 to 50 staff members um, in a given week. And uh, and I deal with the airmail, the airmail staff's about 28. And I deal with them all individually, probably over the course of a two week period. Um, But I think that, I don't know whether it's a reckoning. I think that, first of all, I don't know why people go on Twitter because the number of people who've lost their jobs because of moronic things they've said on Twitter, uh, it, it, it's, it's a long list. I think most computers should have um, breathalyzers on them because I think a lot of people do this when they shouldn't be doing it.
4: Drunk tweeting?
3: Drunk, yeah. I mean, I don't tweet <laughs> and I don't have an Instagram account and I don't have a Facebook account. But the simple reason is I probably would say something moronic and lose my job
4: right um but you know media companies now are more focused on diversity uh, than than they were maybe 10 15 20 years ago you know do you think there was a big issue around diversity in in the way magazines have have were created back then and how how do you feel about some of the changes that are now starting to be made
3: to give magazines credit i think and newspapers credit and journalism credit i think there have been great strides and great efforts uh, across the board in trying to make their staffs and their, their editorial, uh, their editorial more diverse and reflect more than just a white male version of the world. And you, you know, I, I mean, uh, we, we go out of our way to try to find new voices because airmail is an international publication. So, you know, we've got a lot of people of color who write for us and, uh, and that'll that'll expand. Um, uh, so it, it's I think it's been an ongoing process. You can't turn it, ships around overnight, but I think that it will. This will accelerate it. And uh, I don't think any publication would turn away a candidate because of the color of their skin. I just don't think that's the case. It's all I think it's based on talent and uh, more than anything else. So
4: what got in the way then, Graydon? Of you know the voices that are emerging now, saying that they were never treated fairly, or that you know they they were never given a fair shot, even if they were inside these companies, like having their voice. What do you think? What do you What do you think is the systemic issues that may have gotten away?
3: You know, I mean, uh, I, hard to tell. I mean, the fact is, if you're uh, if you're really clever and you're an African American, I mean, journalism is not the best paying uh, uh, profession. If you're rich really you can be. A, you can write books, and but you know, they, you know, banks are trying to hire these people at like five times the rates of magazines. So, um, I do think that I think there'll be a change that that young African Americans will see the fact is they can have an impact in journalism that they would not have had if they went to become a uh, you know a, a, an associate at a, at a large bank, and they, they'll maybe make less money. But they might have a more fulfilling life, and um, and actually, and have a have a richer sense of self. Yeah, Uh, journalism a wonderful profession. Nobody goes in it to get rich. You're going to have a great time and hopefully do some good work.
4: Yeah, well, I can certainly relate to that. Um, You know, I wanted to talk to you also about you know the kind of you know if you, if you look at airmail and if you look at Vanity Fair, there there were there are certain similarities in some of the tone uh, and and maybe even some of the design and aesthetic, but also in terms of the focus on these kind of aspirational lifestyles or you know people of of power or privilege or or great wealth, and kind of digging in a bit into their lives and kind of you know, in some ways holding them to account. I, I just wonder in the context of you know a growing band of voices around diversity and you know different lifestyles if you think that original formula of the kind of uh, aspirational lifestyle you know how that's changing now in light of some of these shifts and in, in you know social movement and whatnot
3: I mean it's hard to tell I think the word billionaire is more of a pejorative than it was three years ago. Uh, I do think that, you know, for good journalism, what you need is, uh, you know, elements that you need. Narrative, you like a beginning, middle, and end to a story. You like um, access, which helps with the story, especially in in the terms of vanity fair, because you need photography. And you need need a, a a conflict. I think stories are always better when companies, nations, or people are at odds. And you need disclosure. You need, and the fact is, you've got to have, you be able to move the, the scholarship of the subject along. So, that, I don't think that's going to change. I do think that people love stories about people rising up in the world, and they like stories about people falling down in the world. And I don't think that's going to change. Um, but I don't think, I think woke it should be an element of a publication, and you know, woke as we describe it these days, and inclusion. But it can't be the, the mission if you're a general interest publication. That that should be part of your worldview, but not the only part of your worldview.
4: Hmm. Well, while we're on the topic of billionaires, I, I did want to ask you about the controversy uh, surrounding Jeffrey Epstein. And, you know, I, I did go and read the story, The Talented Mr. Epstein, that Vanity Fair published during your tenure. And, you know, having read the story, it's no... By no means an entirely positive, flattering story, but this writer, Vicky Ward, has said that you edit out edited out important details of, of Epstein's abuse, which is now well known. And I wonder if you could set the record straight on on what happened and and, and why, you know, in, in a in a world where you were actually trying to get those kinds of scoops about powerful people who might not be, you know, behaving properly, why it didn't get included in the story, and you know what that, what you think that says about that story now in light of everything that's happened.
3: Well, you know, over the course of 25 years, I probably edited between four and 5,000 stories, and every one of those goes through a rigorous system of a senior edit, uh, the editor of the story will edit something, uh, copy editing, fact checking, uh, and legal review before that story, and, and editing by myself, before that story goes into print. And the legal and fact checking uh, elements of Vanity Fair, which was quite extensive. We had a lawyer uh, read all, uh, all, all copy as well. Uh, that is the, your, your line of defense. And you know, they, my my head of fact checking, my legal review editor, and the, the lawyer for the company said, we simply did not have what we needed to print this. And it came in late. If it had come in a month or two earlier, we might've had time to to change that and so um, the writer Vicki Ward she uh, we we published the story she had she wasn't exclusive to us she could have gone anywhere with that story the next day and but she didn't for, for 13 or 15 years she did nothing with it in fact she wrote a glowing story about them in 2013 where she talked about how charming and Jeffrey Epstein and Elaine Maxwell are, are and So I, it, it, the fact is it actually, you know, you, you make decisions at a big magazine, like Vanity Fair, you do not do them individually. You rely on, on the staff around you. And I always say that 75% of the time, you know, pretty much know what to do, but 25% of the time you are in doubt. And that's when you have a circle of very talented, very skilled colleagues to help make the decision. And in this case, they said we did not have the information we needed to publish that that little bit of information in the story.
4: Yeah. And do you have any regrets now about that, knowing now what you know? You know,
3: we were almost going to press, and perhaps if, if, I, if I'd felt that the, the information was stronger, I could have, I might have held the story, which is very complex when you're a part of the magazine already been printed. I would have loved to, that's the sort of story I would have loved to have broken. But uh, we we didn't have what we needed. and. Uh, i uh it uh, I feel so sorry because i you know I have two daughters and i mean i I think that he is so much worse than one could have ever humanly imagined and I feel great pain and and, and sorrow for for the the women he took advantage of I just do i think it's 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 and there it's it's such an appalling situation and then if i if I had met him knowing all of this, I probably would have strangled him
4: hmm. OK, well, that, that sets the record straight for sure. Um, let's go back to Airmail, because you're about to land on your first year anniversary. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, having, having you know, launched this completely different kind of publication, at least for you, you know, what, what would you do differently now? Like what have you learned uh, about launching a digital-only publication that maybe you wouldn't have expected?
3: Well, the staff is bigger than I anticipated. Um, uh, it's, I, third of th- I, I brought my old, we had these wonderful offices down in the village and I brought, uh, we, we'd sold our house uh, in the village. And I had a 17 foot long, it's a quite narrow dining room table. And the, the goal was to keep the staff small enough that we could all fit around this table. And, you know, before the first issue was published, we we'd already expanded beyond that. Um, originally I was going to just, I wasn't going to assign many stories. I was just going to buy the rights to serialize stories in the foreign papers. And I thought, and that uh, just stories I found interesting that I thought friends in America or friends in France would find interesting. But it didn't work out that way. That uh, actually about about 85% of the stories are stories we've assigned. And strange enough, the, st- the stories we have assigned do better than the ones that we didn't assign. That said, we still, you know, we try to find great stories. We, my co-editor, um, Alessandra Stanley, an amazing person. That she, um, we started off at Time Magazine together back in the late '70s, early '80s, and but she, uh, I, I didn't know this when we, when I asked her to to be my partner in this. She speaks five languages. She speaks Spanish, Italian, Russian, and French. So she reads. Uh, a wide array of foreign publications. She, uh, she, um, and so she will pepper me with things from uh, outside areas that I know nothing about. Um, she also has to be the only person I've ever met, I've known her for 40 years, and I only found out a year ago, by, by accident through another person, that she had gone to Harvard. And most people, <laughs> Friends of mine have gone to Harvard. They usually sort of somehow let you know within 10 or 15 minutes that they've gone there. <laughs> she keeps all her talents under a bushel. She's very discreet, and she's one of the funniest women I've ever met. So we have a we have a blast doing this. And uh, you know, it's more. I I thought I'd be working about three hours a week, but I'm uh, three hours a day. I should say, but I'm probably working, you know, six. Six hours a day, and but um, the same. Time, How does
4: that compare to Vanity Fair? At you know when you were there,
3: Vanity Fair. So I wait So I, you know, um, similar. I probably worked about you know thirty five. I worked. I work every weekend as well. So it's about the same. It's about the same, but the, the, I've noticed this time next year, it's not. It's much less. Yeah, yeah. There are other things i I'm, I'm I should be doing.
4: I've noticed, you know, you went from sending one email on a Saturday to sending many more emails during the week. There's like a kid's email and there's other uh, there's a culture email. Is that because you realized in that uh, in that Saturday email, there was so much stuff in there that people just didn't get through it all
3: There's a bit of that. And then the the experts uh, said, you've got to have reader engagement more often. I said, well, look, I don't want to pester people and I don't want to become a bother. And I still like them to look forward to the Saturday email. And so this has been a test to see whether we're knocking on your door too often or rather than knocking on your door too little. So we'll, it's everything. The nice thing about the internet, everything can be a test.
4: Yeah. And that's, that's the best part. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah.
3: Like We changed our logo. It was originally, you know, in, in, in March, our logo underneath the uh, airmail uh, airplane said for the world traveler. <coughs> and so in March, around the middle of March, I said, nobody's traveling. So we just changed it for the world citizen. And at a certain point, we'll go back to traveler, I'm sure.
4: Right. Speaking of your logo, another innovation that I spotted was the little physical newsstand that you've branded on one of my favorite streets here in London, Chiltern Street. Yes. Uh, Sri G News. You know, help, help me understand the business strategy, Graydon, of a digital publication Sponsoring a physical newsstand. I and mean, you don't have a physical publication.
3: Well, we don't sponsor it So I just, I had absolutely nothing to do with starting this up uh, Anjali Lewis who works on the business side had been talking to um, Gabriel Chipperfield who is uh, a designer and architect and He came to, to Anjali with the idea that he wanted to redo the, the Shriji newsstand and that it they wanted to do it with airmail and I thought it was a wonderful idea. I mean, I love newsstands, and I realized we don't sell anything there. Um, so uh, it's sort of he designed it he uh, and he runs it with Shriji and they curate he Shriji still curates his magazines. but I think it's one of the most beautiful newsstands in the world and i I'm thrilled and um, uh, um, and i we we think we might do others uh, you know newsstands bring life to a block the way few other um entities do. If you run a shopping mall, um, I would think putting in a a beautiful newsstand and sort of redoing what a newsstand can be would be very attractive. The same thing goes like say the long bleaker street in the village. I mean, it was just all boarded up long before, even before the, the coronavirus, because of high rents and and greedy landlords. And I thought, you know, you put a newsstand. In the middle of one of those blocks, and you all of a sudden you'll start getting foot traffic, and that's good for all the little shops that could open up along there. So I think it's a force for good. It makes absolutely no sense, but I love it.
4: Right. Well, I, I think it's 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 really, really well executed. I haven't been able to physically go there myself, but the pictures I saw looked yeah amazing. Yeah. Um, last question, Graydon, because there's a lot of uh Young or even not young writers, editors, reporters, who um, joined us today, uh, who look up to you, you know what? What's your advice now uh, as we think about the future of media and where things are going? Like where, where, where can some of these people focus their energies? And if you were advising them,
3: well, you know the, the the one thing the internet does in a way is um, allows you to be narrow but deep of of, you know to become an expert on something uh you know there's some guy who who fact checks all of donald trump's um uh, comments and he became you know overnight the sort of go-to guy for somebody trying to find out it was is this real or not and if you become if you if you want to write about old-fashioned you know wooden calendars and you do it really well you can build an audience and get advertising. It may not be my cup of tea, but uh, um, so I, I think that it's it's about specialization rather than being a, a broad in a certain way, but just doing it well, and and uh, everything else will flow through if you work hard. Or you've got a, a modicum of talent. I have I have minimal talents at almost anything, and I've done pretty well. But I you know I worked hard. I think uh, being decent to other people helps, and. I actually love partners. I think that anytime you do something, I, I I had partners in the magazine business and I've had partners in the restaurant business. I love having a partner. It gives you, uh, you share the glory, but you share the pain and it gives you, you got two brains instead of one. And it, it, I find it uh, wonderful. I know for Airmail, if anybody has a story suggestion, we have an inquiry of um, a portion at the bottom of every issue. And a number of story ideas have come in through there. So I've always been open to to new writers and uh, they come from sometimes the the most surprising places. But I value great uh, cartoons, great artwork. We have a lot of art, we have some of the best artists working today from Ed Sorrell to Barry Blitt to um, uh, Jim McMullen who's done all the posters for the Lincoln Center Theater for the last 30 years. Uh, David Downton who's in the Fashion Illustrator in London. So I care a lot about illustration. I'm a, a, I'm a crappy one myself, illustrator. So I, I think that um, I think there will be new opportunities through all of this um, period of upheaval. But I, I uh, and I, but I do think the digital world will provide a new way of um, of making a life in journalism. I just do. I think that uh, you know rather than having to you know work your way up at the New York Times or you work your way up at Time Magazine, things are different now. And uh, some of it, uh, for the worst, I think people will miss the the fun of an office because I think an office is a the second family. It's a, there's a reason so many successful TV shows are set in an office situation. It's because outside of your family, that is your, your for your family. You probably spend more hours a day with waking hours with the office family than you do with the the real family in some cases. So, um, you know, I think there's opportunities there, but it's just a question of being good and doing something that somebody else doesn't do as well. And that goes to the thing of just have a point. So that if you you produce the greatest website on wooden day calendars, that you know, some people start finding you. And if you do it on a...
4: That's the second time you've used that example. Is it a real life thing <laughs> that you've seen? I've been looking
3: at this across my desk. Oh, right. <laughs> and, and no, it could be fountain pens. It could be binder clips. You know, that you can make a name doing anything as long as it's done well. Right. Okay. Well,
4: on that, on that note, and that piece of very valuable advice. I mean, as someone who runs... A publication that is a specialist publication, but global. I, it, def, it definitely relates. It definitely relate to what you're saying
3: uh, you took on women's wear, and look what happened.
4: Yeah, global niches. We're all into global niches. Okay. Um, um, great, and thank you so much. I hope you stay safe in the south of France. And um, thank you for your time and your advice and your candid replies. Uh, This is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion. Thank you for joining us for BOF Live. We have lots of these events every single day. So check out businessoffashion.com slash events. Thanks again, Graydon. Thanks, Imran. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe, give us a rating, and you might be interested in joining the Business of Fashion's global membership community, BOF Professional. Our members receive exclusive deep dive analysis, regular email briefings, as well as unlimited access to our archive of over 10,000 articles, our new iPhone app, and all of the online courses and learning materials from BOF Education.
1: Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night.